Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with the, isn't this the money in the bank edition? It kind of still is, Matt Riddle. The WWE Money in the Bank Fallout edition, let's call it, of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. It is Independence Day here in the United States and happy 4th of July to all of those who celebrate. But the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, is back with vintage Chris Vanini joining momentarily to break down everything that happened over the last weekend in the world of WWE. Of course, we already have your WWE Money in the Bank instant reaction podcast waiting for you in the feed. If you have not listened to that already, I highly suggest you do. But on this episode of the show, we'll not only be discussing fallout from Money in the Bank, we're going to talk about everything that happened on SmackDown unrelated to Money in the Bank and, of course, the Raw after the latest WWE premium live event. We have a ton to get to on today's show, multiple segments beyond what we normally do, so we're not going to waste any time off the jump. Allow me to remind you that this podcast is all about So please do us a solid head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five star ratings for us on Apple. Leave a five star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. I believe we're at 397 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Folks, three away from 400. We've done more episodes of the show. Then we have reviews on Apple Podcasts. So please, I know how many of you listen. Our numbers for the Money in the Bank instant reaction were enormous. I appreciate all of you, but please leave those five-star ratings and reviews if you have not already. Look, all we're asking. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. It's really not that big of a deal. Be marks for the Silver King and Vintage. Also, please head on over to Twitter while it still exists. Join us there at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, and so much more again on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We are, by the way, seeking a Blue Sky account for the show. So if you happen to have an invite, send it over our way. But if not, we will get up there sooner than later. Also, please remember, I happen to love the number five. And we love doing this podcast for you. So we hope you consider contributing $5 a month and becoming an official Getting Overhead Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. And for those $5, you get bonus audio and news posts. And folks who are reading those news posts are learning a lot of stuff about WWE before it transpires each week. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. And yeah, the $5 gets you all that bonus stuff. But more than anything else, you support the show with it. Vintage, welcome to the podcast. Great having you on this July 4th. I know you and I both have our own individual plans, but we did want to hop on and do this WWE episode coming out of, hey, spoiler alert, I'll talk about it a little bit more later, another tremendous edition of Raw on Monday night. I really like what Triple H is doing with this show. The show has found uh, found its pace again. Yeah. You know, coming out of Mania, there were, you know, the Raw after Mania was terrible. It, Things were up and down for a bit, but coming into Money in the Bank and so far coming out of Money in the Bank and presumably going into SummerSlam, we're going to continue the momentum. It's a, it's a very good show. And like I said at the end of our Money in the Bank reaction, this company's hot right now. Like like things are going really well in a lot of different ways. And now we're heading into the second biggest show of the year, and that's exciting. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. I mean, it wasn't part of our show plans, but 
you know, something I did notice over the last few days, but really dating back to like backlash and, you know, WrestleMania was great, but the atmosphere of backlash, something about that crowd in Puerto Rico, it just kind of like indicated to every other fan watching WWE. This is what you're supposed to be like when you're here at the show. And look, Perhaps no one from Lafayette, Louisiana was watching Backlash and didn't get that message, but apparently everyone else did, including Baltimore on Monday night. I digress. Sorry, Lafayette, just making fun of you. Um, But what's insane right now to me, Chris, is how many wrestlers are ridiculously over in WWE. Like, okay, yeah, Roman Reigns, Cody Rhodes, Seth Rollins. Sure. But Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, The Usos, Dominic Mysterio, LA Knight, Rhea Ripley, EO Sky, Becky Lynch, Sheamus was up there for a while. You know, they petered that off. They didn't give him the win. Drew McIntyre, now that he's back, Gunther, Finn Balor, Alpha Academy, clearly after Monday. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not just talking about folks that people like to cheer or boo. These reactions are enormous for some of these superstars. I mean, Dom getting booed out of the building every single week. And I know it's gimmicky now and it's fun, but still, LA Knight who is on this meteoric rise and good for him. But still, the even despite that, he hasn't actually done anything to garner no. the reactions that he's getting. He's getting reactions far beyond what his character deserves, let's say, on television. And when you combine all of that with the quality of WWE product we're getting, and look, I have problems with SmackDown. I've been talking about it for weeks, and I'm going to talk about it again on this show. But Raw is on fire. The premium live events are great. That's not even mentioning outside of WWE. The quality of in-ring work that we're getting from AEW right now, New Japan, plus going back to WWE, the ratings. SmackDown just did a very nice 0.69 demo. For the second time, they were over uh, or at 0.69 or better in about a month for a taped show overseas. The ticket sales, the crowd reactions. I'm not suggesting this is necessarily a boon period for WWE because they're still searching for that level of mainstream appeal that they had back during the Attitude Era. But Chris, it sure as shit feels like there's an opportunity for that to actually happen now, maybe for the first time in decades. Look, you can point this directly back to the moment Triple H took over the book last summer and immediately a lot of people were talking about things being better and attendance started going up and TV ratings started going up. And yes, there's been ups and downs. We've complained about a lot of things. Absolutely. Nothing's uh, perfect. Which is done, including the, including the booking of the women for quite a long time during his, his tenure. But like you said, so many wrestlers are over right now because it's a fun show and we trust the show again. We trust that we're not just going to get the rug pulled out from under us. We're going to get some nonsense garbage weird comedy thing it's going to be an actually funny thing it doesn't feel like the show is changing at the whims uh of the madman really old man at the top of the company <laughs> and uh, hold on let me let me 30, and, let me and, i know you're i know you're on a roll but i want a 30 second pause you uh, i always whenever people talk about vince i always think of speed when the guy goes we're at the whims of a madman and then dennis hopper starts laughing whims <laughs> of a madman sorry go ahead <laughs> it is it is though and know, and, and just of mouth from friends, family, other people continues to be positive. I said this last week, I think. People I know who are just casual wrestling fans or not really wrestling fans but know about it are asking like, 
hey, I like this LA Knight guy. What's this yeah thing I keep mm-hmm. seeing? Like things are breaking through in different ways. My dad texted me last night. Uh, he said, hey, is Raw in is Raw in London tonight? He texted me as the show started. I said, no, it's it's in Baltimore. So like he's starting to kind of watch it again. Maybe that's because we're going to SummerSlam, but he watched Money in the Bank. He liked the show. That got him to watch Monday Night Raw. And it's just building upon itself into your first point about the crowds. All those international shows mm-hmm. have raised the bar for American crowds to the point where last night on Raw in Baltimore, they sang Cody Rhodes entire just as the London crowd did two days before. That was not happening in the States. They did the woe, but they weren't singing the whole song. Now that happened after all. Like this stuff just keeps building upon itself right now. What's you, you mentioned your father, one of my best friends who definitely watched wrestling back in the day. And I would occasionally talk about it with him in college, even though that was the period of time where neither of us were watching. He texted me at 4.33 p.m. on Saturday. He's like, are you watching Money in the Bank? I'm like, of course I'm watching Money in the Bank. He knows I watch still. He's like, yeah, I'm watching. He was that Cena pop was sick. Then he, he's texting me time for the real civil war. This guy has not watched an entire WWE pay-per-view or premium live event, whatever. I come to find out he sat down with his daughter and watched the entire show. And I'm like, why? He goes, I just felt like it. I wanted to. I'm like, are you watching Raw and SmackDown? He's like, no, I just, I saw that it was on and I, I, I watched it. He's like, I thought it was pretty good. The blood, he even gave me analysis. The bloodline match was too slow to build, but great finish. Never heard of LA Knight, but boy, the crowd was really pulling for him. So like, this is, a, you want to talk about a casual fan. This is beyond a casual fan. Didn't even get prompting mm-hmm. from me. I didn't say to him, hey, dude, you should watch the show. It's going to be really good. He just randomly watched it and started texting me about it. So it's starting to like leak into the mainstream a little bit. And look, you know, you said credit Triple H and I'll say this. You will it, dude. It is no dream. A couple really smart people said that. And you could say this too. I am the game, JR. There is nobody that eats, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. And in many ways, I agree with that. But we also have to give credit to Nick Khan here because for criticisms that he's deservingly received, uh, among them, I would say perhaps the day one concept, trying to do money in the bank at the stadium in Las Vegas on UFC weekend, some pretty bad decisions he's made. His best decision has been taking WWE International on a consistent basis. You mentioned this, that coinciding with Triple H having the book and us getting continuity, long-term storytelling, obviously a really hot story individually with the bloodline. And just as a viewer, most weeks, the vast majority of weeks, I feel like I'm being treated like an adult. There's not three weeks in a row where Mm -hmm. I'm getting the same rematch. If I do, such as let's say Rhea Ripley and Natalia, even though those were not three weeks in a row, there's a specific storyline reason for that happening. It's not laziness of, oh yeah, well, Ricochet beat Bronson Reed last week, so let's go ahead and have Bronson Reed beat Ricochet this week, and then next week we'll do a rubber match. Oh, yeah, and there's nothing on the line for any of these. Oh, and in the rubber match, he'll probably win via DQ. That way Ricochet doesn't get hurt too bad. Like, they're not doing that, right? It's 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 adult mm-hmm. booking, and I don't mean adult in, in terms of storylines and themes, but they're saying, hey, you, the viewer, you who is spending five hours a week watching our product, we're going to make it worth your while. And for a long time, including... The beginning of this show during the pandemic, and you know, we can give them a grace period because of that and the Thunderdome and all that. But going back to the other shows I've been on for a long period of time watching wrestling, WWE specifically, 
you didn't feel like a valued customer. I feel now as a valued customer. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it gives you a reason to watch the next week. And they're just it's just good storytelling and it's good business. And the cons made some very good decisions, like you said. And um, it's just it's all working right now. It's fun. It's fun to do this. Who would have thought, Chris, that uh, treating your customer well and putting on good television would be good for business? What <laughs> a concept. Who would have thunk it? Uh, all right. We got a four segment show today. We're going to kick things off with some WWE money in the bank fallout for you. A lot of stuff to discuss there. Then we're going to get into the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we will wrap things up with the last word. So let's not waste any more time. WWE money in the bank fallout. We didn't mention this at all on Saturday, and it's my fault for missing it. But Wade Barrett doing color commentary with Michael Cole, the entire show, that was a really inspired decision. Like, obviously, he's British, and that makes complete sense for him to be in that spot. But they could have, like, alternated him with Corey Graves or done a three-man booth. Instead, they gave Barrett the moment, and Chris, I thought he completely delivered. I've really liked Cole and Barrett together. Uh, it wasn't, you know, when, when Pat McAfee left, mm -hmm. it was disappointing. But Wade Barrett's done a very good job filling in to the point where, like, I'm not thinking about, oh, man, is Pat McAfee going to come back to WWE anymore? I'm just accepted. And I love that they stuck with it with a two man booth as, as they've continued to do on, on both shows now. And it just makes everything flow better. Um, I don't know if Corey Graves, if it had anything to do with Carmella being pregnant and just or not traveling overseas. I don't know what it was, but I think it was a good decision to with them and I, I've really enjoyed that team on SmackDown. It's it's very clearly the A between the two. Oh, well, and, uh, it, <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly the A team, especially with Michael Cole, uh, you know, doing the play by play compared to Kevin Patrick. And that was the other thing I was going to talk about Cole. You know, we did praise him on the instant reaction, but I want to pause and really let it sink in that Cole was operating at like goat level in the finish of the Bloodline Civil War match. He was. Like, I'm not here to mm -hmm. say it was necessarily the best call of his career. I doubt that's true. I'm sure I could go back and find some better ones. But it was fucking incredible. And I also realized, you know, he missed that low blow on the kickout. I think he missed it because with the table being destroyed, it's unlikely he had a monitor to view. You know, even though the desk is right next to the ring, they don't look up. They watch what they see on their TV screens because they're calling the action for us at home. So he either saw it on replay or someone in his headset gave him a note after the fact. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. Now, some, like one of our listeners, Owen Tucky, believes Cole missed the call on purpose because he similarly missed it three years ago when Roman Reigns did it to Jey Uso. That is definitely possible. I don't mm. want to definitely say that that was what Cole did there, but either way, it didn't detract too much or really change what was an outstanding call to the match, particularly those final five minutes. I don't know if you went back to watch it, Chris, but Cole was operating at a different level in the finish of that match. I mean, a lot of the matches too, both the Money in the Bank matches, when we when everybody thought LA Knight was going to win, he's crawling up, Wade Barrett has a great call. Mm -hmm. And like, there was the line between oh, we're going to have a new champion. We're going to have a Money in the Bank winner. And when they say that, you know we're not. Like, we're so conditioned to, to that that when they say it's going to happen, before it happens, you know it's not going to happen. Right. Um, but they, they've said 
some of those things with a with a true excitement in the moment where you did kind of believe them for a minute. And, and it, uh, Cole, WWE put out a video of Cole reacting to a number of the spots in the men's Money in the Bank match. And um, yeah, just I thought the whole show, really, the two of them did a really, really good job. They did for sure. Now, I'm going to go match by match here. We're not going to talk about every single match again. If you want that full instant reaction, the recap of the matches, the grades, all of that, be sure to listen to our WWE Money in the Bank instant reaction show. But there are a few I wanted to double back on. And more than any, obviously, the Bloodline Civil War, the Usos defeating Roman Reigns and Solo Sokoa. So, Chris, I'm just going to go down a bunch of notes here. Anything that you want to say to kind of counter me or double up on it, whatever, just stop me, interrupt, go right for it. But I don't want to waste too much time kind of pausing after each of these. Uh, I want to kick things off with the Bloodline Civil War video package was outstanding. There were tons of layers shown. It really crystallized how Jay was stuck choosing between his brothers, not just Roman. When you get into the match, the Samoan spike spear combination, that would be a crazy finisher if they were a real tag team. And we did talk Mm -hmm. about that double stack kick out being really sick, but we didn't actually explain why it was so sick. And that's on me. So first of all, it was the hubris of Reigns to like do it when he could have easily pinned Jay after that spike spear and ended the match. And then he wants to show off and you have fans in the arena who are literally chanting bullshit, ready to burn down the O2, assuming they knew, oh, they hit the double finish, they're stacking them, Reigns is going to win again, roll my eyes, of course he does. So the fans are vociferously booing and chanting bullshit, they're angry, only for that kick out to send them into a frenzy. Chris, I legitimately thought that was an all-time false finish, not number one necessarily, but up there. Yeah, and also I like that they told us that Roman had tweeted during the day, we're going to smash him, spike him, stack him, right. pin him. Uh, so they like alluded to it before it happened, which I like because I, I had missed the tweet because Twitter was a mess. Yeah. So um, I, I, I like that. Um, I like that note as well. Um, one, one thing on this match, I didn't notice it until my brother pointed it out. The WWE title, the black one, it has the Brock Lesnar plates in it. So I, I don't know if um, really if they only had two sets of Roman plates and because he got the third title, they had to put them on that one. But yeah, I went back and looked. It's got the Bro- it's got the Brock Lesnar uh, skull thing plates and the black title. Well, I, would, I don't know. I haven't gone back to look if it's been that case for a while or what. But uh, this would be my guess. Yeah. This would be my guess. First of all, if they were replacing them or ran out of plates, they would use the standard WWE ones. They have plain ones for the titles and you can get yeah. them off of any of the ones that they sell in London. So they would have yeah. been able to get those. My guess in, t- in terms of what happened is that someone forgot to bring the title or it got lost or whatever. And Paul Heyman probably had to bring one from his house and brought that one and it had the plates. But that's really, really odd. There's no reason that Brock Lesnar's plate should be on that title. Yeah, well, I mean, this was in London, so I don't think Paul Heyman brought it from home. But no, I'm yeah, saying when he flew I, I over, they may have said, "Hey, bring an extra, you know, bring the title," or or maybe Paul oh, had yeah. it for some reason and picked up the wrong one in his house. I mean, I don't know, but that's not a that's not purposeful. There's no way that they purposefully did that either to keep them on there, which we would have noticed it beforehand. Someone would have noticed it, or if they were changing them out because they ran out of plates, let's say, like like you're talking about. They would just use the generic generic ones. They wouldn't put Brock's on there. So something had to have happened. Yeah, I need to look. Yeah, I need to look back because he took that title off of Brock. So I, 
I wrote this on Saturday. I just pulled it back up. So I w- we, I'd have to go back and check any time since, you know, August, April 2022 to see if it's always the case. Yeah. I mean, just look, look at WrestleMania and see what it looks like at WrestleMania. Um, I'll keep going. So I do have a little bit more from this. The acting of like relief by Jimmy and astonishment by Jay during that pin finish was pretty tremendous. And Cole pointing out that Rain's entire mystique is now like evaporating, that Jay has like cracked the impenetrable armor, all of that. While simultaneously the crowd is singing the Usos theme, which is something you never hear, it was quite like a goosebump mm-hmm. type of moment wrapping it in a bow. You had the Usos like overcoming their abuser and needing the reality of that happening to soak in before they even celebrated in the moment. And then all of that, I mean, for me, it helped elevate the Usos into all time tag team rarefied air. Like they're now up there in tier one with anyone else that you might put in that category, as far as I'm concerned, at least. Agree. Also for the back WrestleMania of 39, it did have Roman Reigns plates in it. All right. So something clearly so, happened. For yeah. some, some, something's up with that. Um, yep. That was, that was great to, to, to the point on the pin. Uh, if you're going to mention this or not, I know there are a bunch of clips going around of Roman apparently saying, I love you to Jay during mm-hmm. the pin. Uh, I couldn't make it out. I watched it a million times. Me too. He looked looked like he said something, but I couldn't couldn't tell you that that's what he said. Yeah, and they're like, oh, he grabbed his arm. I watched that clip five or ten times. I didn't see it. I think that's just people. No, it was Jay grabbed Roman's arm. I know. I know. But they're like, what they're they're saying is Rain said that, I love you. And then Jay grabbed his arm to say, I love you too. I don't believe that happened. But I mean, I I saw it. I, I... I don't see Rain saying that. Maybe he did whisper it and we just can't make it out. Jay grabbing his arm. I don't know that it was a reaction to it. But if that's what you want to believe, that's fine. I mean, it was sweet. I do know the Usos grabbed each other's hands on the uh, double kick out. That was pretty cool seeing that. Uh, now, we also mentioned uh, Sokoa reviving Reigns from his low point in the match. But there was actually more on the rewatch that I kind of missed, I guess, while I was taking notes. So Roman forced Solo to tag him in early in the match. And he did that after Sokoa had already done a lot of damage to the Usos. Sokoa also saved him from the double Uso splash spot where Roman nearly got pinned. That led directly to that double stack sequence. And then again, as I said, he revived him for that finishing sequence. So there's going to be a lot of storyline, let's call it ammunition there for Solo, in addition to just what happened at the end of the match. One of the reasons, I noticed this as well, that Reigns... Rain, uh, title rain, has not grown necessarily as tiresome to most compared to, let's say, like John Cena, if he was in the same spot. Roman is not afraid to allow himself to look vulnerable as champion. Whereas we got like Super Cena for every match back in the day, Roman frequently survives by the skin of his teeth. He's been defeated three different times in tag team matches, and he has told viewers through his actions that many of his retentions have come by happenstance or interference, referee knockout, cheating, uh, the demon situation, happenstance. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So throwing that context into this entire thing, he has somehow been able to be this dominant, unbeatable champion, yet consistently through his reign, we've seen him as potentially beatable if only the stars align. And the stars aligned in this match. I just thought that kind of worked together well. That also reminds me, for a while during the beginning of this reign, or for the first half or so, 
people would say Roman is not elevating anybody. Nobody is nobody's looked better for having been in the ring or, or been in a feud with Roman. Like who is he making through this feud? But I think over the last six months, maybe a year, mm-hmm. that has completely changed. Agreed. Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens, but specifically Sami Zayn, is at a level he's never been before. Right. And that's because of his work with Roman Reigns. Cody Rhodes, I know he lost, but he reached that level because of his work with Roman and Reigns. And he's maintained the that Usos, level. Yeah. Yes. And the Usos have reached a level they had never been before because of working with and against Roman Reigns. And that's ultimately what you want these long title reigns to be. You have to elevate people beside you. So when you get taken down, there is a rub. There is a jump for 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 not just that person, but everybody who's been a part of this journey. And that's really happened, I think, over the last six months now, where you've got these all-time moments for Sammy, for Jey Uso, for all kinds of things. And that's a credit to the storytelling. Um, and, and kind of how they've tweaked it. Again, I, I didn't even realize this, but I, I know I said the last six months to a year, again, that's really when Triple H took over and the storytelling got better. And as a result, you know, Roman is the champion, but it's not just him anymore. It's not, he's not on the island of relevancy, really. There are a lot of other people there now. Mm-hmm. And that's the credit to Roman and the way they've told these stories. The only person you missed in that entire, uh, you know, breakdown there, Solo Sokoa, he came in, as yeah. a guy from NXT who didn't have much of a run in NXT and has now been been elevated to like Umaga like levels. Like I hate to make that comparison, but it's so easy and obvious and appropriate. He's a dominant, totally believable guy. You could put him in any match. You could probably put, I would say any title on him, maybe except Reigns title. And you could believe it as of right now. And it's just been fantastic what he's done. Uh, I'll wrap this up by saying I was going to reevaluate the grade. I'm staying where I was, 4.75 stars, A+. Uh, even with the storyline elements and the finish was just absolutely fantastic. The opening 15 minutes of the match, it was too slow to call this perfect, which to me is what five stars indicates. And obviously when I give five stars plus, it's beyond perfect. Um, this wasn't perfect, but it man, it was A+. plus, So it was right up there. Uh, lastly, before we get to the other matches, we did promise on the Instant Reaction podcast that we would book the damn territory a little bit more here on this episode. So let's just go ahead and do that. I'm going to do it, Chris. You can respond. Maybe you have other ideas. Here's how I see this potentially going as we move forward. First, I have no idea what's going to happen this Friday night when they're doing the trial of the tribal chief on SmackDown. But doing that in Madison Square Garden, you have to believe it's going to be epic. And I can't imagine what that crowd is going to be like. Anyway, Roman must eventually get to a point where he has nothing left except for the titles. So I see Jay challenging at SummerSlam and losing. Something happening along the way, or perhaps even at the end of that match, where Solo Sokoa finally splits from him, possibly because of the way Roman acted in the finish of the Civil War, combined with the way he treats Jay. You know, who knows? Um, And then with only the titles left, Reigns should go full Mad King. He should just start annihilating people, beating them within an inch of their lives, winning matches by referee stoppage, knockout, submission with the guillotine, just regaining his confidence. And it's all false bravado because he has nothing else, no support system anymore. So it's all just him building himself up as this dominant monster in his mind until Cody shows up as the number one contender, however that happens. 
Obviously, then Rhodes takes the WWE title at WrestleMania, leaving Reigns with nothing. He goes away for an extended period of time. In this time, the Usos are baby faces. Sokoa is either a face two or he's full of Umaga tearing shit up on maybe another brand, winning a mid-card title, whatever. Reigns eventually returns to save the Usos, repent as a baby face, and rebuild his family with the respect they all wanted. And now you have babyface bloodline. So that's me booking the damn territory going forward, Chris. How does that sound to you? Yeah, I mean, long term, that's that's the same thing I brought up a couple of weeks, was when Ro- Roman eventually loses the title, goes away for a while, mm-hmm. saves the Usos and, and Solo or whatever as a babyface, and he'll be more over than he has ever been before mm-hmm. when that happens. And that's ultimately where they where they will have always wanted to get him. Short, though, like yeah. six months, like through the end of the year, I I don't know. I have no idea what we do after SummerSlam. Um, do we just end the Bloodline segment and then just Roman is not competing on some pay-per-views, you know, like, like he was before because there is not as many international shows. Is he going to do Payback, Fastlane, you know, these 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 type of shows? Maybe he doesn't. Um, <laughs> one title defense but, and then he defends it next at Royal Rumble. <laughs> so one title defense between I, I April and, and January. <laughs> it's possible. I, I don't know. I'm just like there's you crown know, jewel coming up. So at least left, there'll be at least two who who's on. Yeah. Who, who's on SmackDown for him to fight? Lashley you know, styles. Like we're going you, right. You've got AJ styles. You've got Bobby Lashley. You've got um, Sheamus over there. No, he went back to raw. Um, no, Sheamus is on SmackDown. Sheamus is on SmackDown. Sheamus never like, got his got match. Guys, LA Knight. You've got some guys who. Yeah, you've got some guys who aren't going to beat him. Um, but are worthy challengers, former world champions type of stuff. So you probably go into those and just kind of typical, you know, one or two month feuds, right. I guess. Um, you, But you basically have to just end the bloodline story. That's my biggest question is, is the bloodline story, you know, which has been the vast majority of his reign, but not the entire thing. You know, he didn't come back with the bloodline. He came back as by himself. So, um, does the bloodline story end at SmackDown kind of the, the way the Sami Zayn story eventually had to end? Um, I, but, I think, but it does. you see, even um, though the Sami Zayn story ended, he was just asked about it, you know, Saturday, he was asked about it yeah. the week before on Monday. So like it's over, but it's not really over. I mean, for Sammy, it really is, but the Usos are never going to be completely detached. It's really going to be interesting post SummerSlam to find out what happens with the bloodline and does Sokoa remain with Reigns after SummerSlam? If so, what happens there? I mean, they could run a Sokoa Reigns program for a couple months with the Usos having solos back. There's numerous different, they could bring people in. Like, who, I don't think they're going to get Jacob Fatu. I believe he's under full contract with MLW for a couple more years. But like, maybe they work out a deal there and, and he comes in. I mean, I don't know. There's so many Samoans and so many Anoy family people. <laughs> Who knows what they could do? Like it's possible. Um, but yeah, we'll find out. We we do need to uh move on though. I did spend a lot of time on that. It's mostly my fault, but I did rewatch it over the weekend, Chris, and I did want to make sure that we uh spoke about it a second time before we continued here. Uh wrapping up this WWE Money in the Bank Fallout, men's money in the bank. I found it wild that Knight was cheered even over Butch in this match, given he's British. That's how over he was. Uh watching it live, I said this on the show. The ladders not breaking had a bigger effect on me than they did on the rewatch. I didn't mind it as much. It 
once you got over it and you know they're not going to break, you're just like, wow, it's still a pretty gnarly spot that they were able to do it. Um, I thought the match was really well booked. The finish with the anticipation building and the building for night only for Priest to kind of come in at the last minute. I'm giving it extra credit. So I'm actually upping my grade. 4.25 stars A from 4 A- minus on the show. As we said Saturday, I know people love Knight and wanted him to win, but let's not forget how everyone was clamoring for Priest to get this huge push after Backlash. He completely deserves this, and he was great on Raw. It's unfair to shit on him just because you as a fan wanted Knight. This guy was punishment freaking Martinez. He takes a leap. He goes to NXT. He gets ripped. He becomes a mainstay in NXT. He gets taken under Edge's wing. He emerges stronger when Edge leaves Judgment Day. He puts on two stellar matches with one of the biggest celebrities in the world. Yeah, the guy deserves the Money in the Bank briefcase. Still, Priest needed it as part of a push because he's been on the losing end for all of those things that I've mentioned. Knight Chris simply did not need the briefcase, even if he would have been great with it. He's already over like Rover. I agree. And again, as, as this podcast, first and foremost, LA Knight pusher, I was not distraught that he didn't win like a lot of people were because like it's obvious how over he is. Um, and they're going there, there are so many more things you can do. He I don't know what's going to happen in SummerSlam, but it, right away, I, I, don't know, I said I would like to do LA Knight, Logan Paul. That's not going to happen. LA Knight versus Austin Theory. He's a face. He takes the title off Austin Theory yep, at SummerSlam. That should be it. He's got a title. Like he, he he's on his way up. And like Triple H was asked about it afterward and talked about it. You know, good things come to those who wait. He continues to be on his ascendance. Like I trust it. I know he's over like crazy right now. That doesn't mean he won't be over three, four, five months from now. We saw it with uh, Sammy. That continued. Cody Rhodes, that momentum continued. Just because they don't get that one moment doesn't doesn't mean they're done in this current day and age. Yes, I remember Braun Strowman when they didn't pull the trigger on him when they mm-hmm. should have and how that set him back forever and he's never come back from it. This is uh, a different situation where you can tell that they recognize how important he is. They are putting him everywhere. He's doing all sorts of interviews. They're, they're promoting his stuff. The SmackDown in London... He does a surprise entrance interruption of Logan Paul. They did a progressive ad at the very beginning of him walking out because they knew that thing Correct. was going to do views. And so they wanted to throw an ad in there. Like yep. they know what they have right now. And I, I trust them to, to get this right and for it to keep climbing. Um, but they got me there in Money in the Bank with that whole spot when they had LA Knight knock out three, four people and then start climbing up like they built that perfectly. And then you use that for Damien Priest to get the heat for throwing LA Knight off. Like it worked, man. It, it, it worked. That really was a stone cold Steve Austin type of spot. Like when he's in a, a yeah. money, if he was in a money in the bank ladder match, or if he was in a situation like that, like a multi-man elimination match, like that is where Austin stuns. One guy stuns another, throws one over the ropes, dodges a finisher, and then starts climbing up and grabs the title and everyone cheers, except they didn't have him win. So, I mean that I also, you know, just since we're talking about LA Knight and we're not going to on the rest of the show, I wrote this on Twitter. It got a lot of um, reaction. Chris, I know you agree with me. Kevin Nash, who I actually hold in high esteem. I think he's a really smart guy. Obviously, he knows wrestling extremely well. And his opinions on not just wrestling issues, but even social issues are very, very well informed and educated and, and aligned with what I think. He comes out and he's mm-hmm. like, LA Knight's a ripoff of The Rock. He's not. 
He's not a ripoff of The Rock. He's not a ripoff of Stone Cold. He's a wrestler who grew up during their Attitude Era as a teenager, like we did, or like I did. You were a little bit younger than me. And his cadence and the way he speaks and cuts promos is influenced by them. Like so many other wrestlers have been influenced by them. The difference between LA Knight and the others influenced by The Rock and Stone Cold is that LA Knight can actually do it because he has that promo talent. So Kevin, like you're a great man, much respect. That is just a straight up asinine comment. LA Knight stands out because he talks like an old pro wrestler would. Like that's how everybody talks. And yes, I've said a long time, he talks like Stone Cold Steve Austin with The Rock's cadence. And I'm oh, sorry, I think I mean the opposite of that. Yeah, you do. But like, we like that. Also, like, he generally kind of talks like that now. And he's been doing this for a very long time. Like, mm-hmm. and I replied to your tweet, like, look, <laughs> Rick Flair, nobody says, oh, Rick Flair is not that great. He just stole Buddy Rogers' Nature Boy gimmick. Like, yeah. that's how wrestling works, man. Everybody's been influenced by somebody else. That, that's like the whole point. And also, even if you think he's doing the rock or stone cold, who cares? It's fun. It's entertaining. What's the problem? I, I'm dreaming of the day we get an LA Knight Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, versus what off? And they just go back and forth. There's a classic moment to just put right there when they feel like they should do it. Like it's like LA Knight has been getting asked about it the last couple of weeks. And yeah. it's he's had good answers in an too. awkward spot. Yeah. And he he's like, look, he's like, that's just kind of like how I talked. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure I was like influenced by it, but like you don't need to. Let, let's not make this the defining LA Knight characteristic, uh, this debate. Whether you think he's doing it or not, who cares, man? It's fun. And that's like, that's all that matters. Chris, who's the most popular wrestler of all time? Uh, Hulk Hogan, Stone Cold Rock, probably. Yeah, Hulk Hogan. No, Hulk Hogan's the answer I was looking for. He's, he was the most mainstream okay. ever, most popular, most biggest household name, whole deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever hear of superstar Billy Graham? Because guess what? Hulk mm-hmm. Hogan took a lot of his gimmick from superstar Billy Graham. You already mentioned uh, Buddy right. Rogers and Ric Flair. It's all over the place, folks. Okay, so let's give me a fucking break that LA Knight's a ripoff of The Rock. He's not doing The Rock's gimmick. Okay, simple as that. Uh, let's go to the Women's Money in the Bank. EO Sky won, obviously. Trish busted her nose in the match. And when she showed it on social media, my only thought going into Raw, I hope the face mask would return. We'll talk about that later. Uh, this match was phenomenal, as I said on the show. I'm keeping the grade at 4.5, but I was really close to going A+. I loved this match. And the post-match with Io celebrating while Becky and Bailey looked totally dejected, having to be stuck there on the ladder watching her, it was an incredible visual. And if WWE still made posters like they used to back in the day, I used to have the posters all on my wall, the Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker, when I was a little kid, whole deal. Um, that shot of EO Sky sitting on top of the ladder with Becky and Bailey looking absolutely miserable, hanging on the ladder, that is a legitimate poster. That if you're an EO Sky fan, man, I'm telling you, go send that to one of those canvas companies. Put that on your wall. That's art. I love that. Um, anything here with the women's money in the bank? Nah, just great, great match, great finish. Loved it. Okay. And lastly, this one I do want to talk about a little bit. Women's Tag Team Championship with... Uh, Raquel Rodriguez and Liv Morgan defeating Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler for the titles. Raquel and Liv got so much time to celebrate their championship. This is what I talk about when I say moments need to breathe. They're not necessarily the top stars in the company, but they got a huge reaction well after the bell 
because the crowd was given time and allowed to cheer them. It seemed in this match that the reason Shayna snapped is Ronda tagged herself in as Shayna thought she was finishing the match. But again, there was no clear explanation in the moment or even after the fact because she said nothing in a social media video. She did explain more on Raw. We'll talk about that later. But in the moment, it was an absolute shocker in large part because I have a pet peeve of tag team champions giving up their titles just to turn on their partners. I get that accentuates like the severity of the hatred that it's so large that hating the person and screwing them over is more important than the titles themselves. But still, it really pushes reality a little bit too much for me. And lastly, uh, there was a report from Wrestling Observer Newsletter that echoed what we theorized on the Instant Reaction podcast, which is that there had to have been an extenuating circumstance here. And it appears there is one. That is a hard out from a date perspective on Rousey's schedule. So it appears that this was a continuation of the booking problems that we have long reported and addressed on this show. They began when Rousey and Baszler got injured consecutively. This was always the planned storyline, but because their title win kept getting pushed back, you have to remember WWE had to move the title win to Raw, then they put the unification on SmackDown and the breakup on Money in a Bank just to create enough time to do a five-week build for SummerSlam. As we originally reported, the plan was for Rousey and Baszler to win these titles at WrestleMania, then unify the titles and defend them across all three brands. Instead of winning them the first couple days of April, they won the titles on May 29th, two full months later. So their reign should have been three months long with a title loss and turn before the one-on-one showdown. Instead, because it was delayed two months, they only got to hold the titles for a month and they had to do all this in a truncated window. My argument, Chris, is this. Okay, if you need to shorten the timeline, fine. Let Liv and Raquel beat Shayna clean because Rousey makes a mistake. Then have Shayna turn on Ronda after the match for not being there to help. And then you can do the whole riding my coattails, I hate you, this whole deal. I don't see why they sullied the title change just for the storyline. And I don't see why they didn't at least tease dissension coming in before doing the breakup. Yeah, like I said, it didn't make any sense timeline-wise because two weeks ago they had a tag team unification match. Like, why was that not the time that Shayna would turn on her? You're right. The general, like, tag teams giving up the tag team belts just to make a point really hurts the titles. And everything you just laid out further shows how cursed these titles are. It always reminds me of NXT New Orleans before WrestleMania 34 when Roddy Strong joined Undisputed Era by turning on Pete Dunne Mm -hmm. to give the titles to Adam Cole and um, uh, uh, Kyle O'Reilly instead of just when, when he could have won the titles himself, he lost on purpose to give the titles to somebody else. So that like, it was a moment, but it was like weird if you thought about it for more than two seconds. So yeah. the, these things are, they set up the way they do. We'll get into the Shayna Ronda promo uh, later in the show, but um, that makes sense. And it goes back to my uh, new year's prediction we had at the end of 2022 I said this would be the last year of Ronda Rousey in WWE, and that may be the case. It certainly may be. You know, the report is that she has a hard out in her contract. I can't confirm that at all, but I don't know if it's a hard out, meaning like she has something else on her schedule and therefore cannot wrestle after this Mm -hmm. date for the remainder of the year, or if it's like the end of her contract and she doesn't want to extend it. 
I'm not exactly sure, but it certainly makes sense for post-SummerSlam to be an end of a contract, potentially, or there might be a gap where then it restarts in January. Who the hell knows? We don't. And I'll tell you, a lot of people that have been reporting on contracts recently, they don't know either. But I do believe the hard out report because it goes right in line with what we were talking about on the Instant Reaction Show. Chris, we got a lot of show left. Speaking of that, we've got three segments here on today. I know we spent a lot of time doing the rehash from Money in the Bank. I do believe it was worthwhile and hopefully entertaining for you all. Let's move on with the segment you know and love. It is time for us to slide into the main event. This is the main event. And before I forget really quick, WWE sold 10,000 for Raw in Baltimore. That Maryland crowd, I know I briefly mentioned it earlier, it was hot. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. And overall, Chris, this was a terrific post-PLE Raw. Monday nights are on fire right now as far as I'm concerned. It's a much better show in nearly every way compared to SmackDown on Fridays. The lone exception, obviously, being the Bloodline story. SummerSlam is basically going to mark a calendar year since Triple H has taken the book. And it's just crazy to me how night and day different Raw has become. Even though the three hours is still long, it's rarely as much of a slog to get through. I always seem to be looking forward to it on Mondays, and it usually is delivering. As long as we're getting enough Cody Rhodes and Seth Rollins and maybe one or two other stars, Judgment it Day. works. If, if you don't have much of them, it is sometimes a bit of a slog. It's just the nature of three hours. Uh, but this one wasn't because we got exactly that. Well, let's talk about those two guys as well as Judgment Day in this main event segment. So Seth Rollins opened Raw with an extended serenade and bow. He put over Jay for pinning Roman and ran down the entire Money in the Bank results. Just as he was about to wonder about his next challenger, Cody Rhodes entered. And just as he was about to start speaking, Brock Lesnar returned. Cody attacked, escaped an F5, and hit a Cody cutter with Brock immediately retreating. Cody then came out like over an hour later on Raw for that new onstage interview that he does. He said that they traded a broken arm and a busted face, so he'll fight Brock any night or every night until their business is finished, excuse me. Uh, Not only was this a hot start to the show, the story was executed in a really smart manner. Rhodes showing that he wants the world championship, despite the goal still being the WWE title, it ensures that this strap is seen on par with the other one. And then Lesnar immediately stepping in his way gives WWE an out from booking that match now or perhaps ever before Cody wins the WWE title, of course. Plus, it showed that Cody is so desirous of revenge that he prioritizes killing Brock over going after Rollins in the title. Just a perfect way to kick off a post-PLE episode. Lesnar sold the Cody cutter like death. He's so good when he wants to be. I'm just hoping this develops a stipulation that is not last man standing for the rubber match. Uh, The second segment was kind of unnecessary. I presume it was for ratings purposes. But overall, this was a really hot way to start the show and kick off two storylines. This was a hot as hell way to start the show. And you basically do like the Triple H Undertaker thing where two guys show up back to back. Mm -hmm. Like it it is, you know, the the press conference after the show, which I know is technically not kayfabe canon or whatever, but Cody was basically like, you know, like the world heavyweight title, you know, it's great and everything, but it's, you know, it's not the title that my dad wanted, you know? So like, you know, acknowledging that, but then coming out the next day, like, you know, maybe he's still interested in the title. It's a world title, but before he can even get to that, anytime Cody Rhodes 
is thinking about a world championship, Brock Lesnar is getting in his way. Just, just like I, I love this. He interrupts mm-hmm. him, you know, with, with Roman stuff after WrestleMania. He interrupts him during the World Heavyweight Championship tournament. And now he interrupts him here. Like he's just like, Cody, you think you're a world champion and I'm out here to show that you are not. And I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. There's a little, there's like, there's, it gives like animosity for Brock that he rarely ever has. Mm-hmm. He's usually just the monster, but like he's got in, he's got motivation here and it's to stop Cody Rhodes from getting something. So starting off with those three really hot way to go. Cody Brock for SummerSlam makes all the sense in the world. You know, uh, he does the interview in front of the st- up at the stage again. Sure. Fine. Again, if we're getting a couple of Cody Rhodes segments throughout the show, like that's good. I like it. Um, he he is the most he over person on the show. He's the face of the show. Get him out there as much as you can. I did notice he starts the show in his ring gear as he's done the last couple of weeks. He shows up yeah. in the ring gear. Then he comes later back out in the suit mm-hmm. to, to do the interview. And then he comes out later in his ring gear again for the match. So a lot of uh, wardrobe changing there. He probably didn't need to start the show in the, in the ring gear and everything, but I know it's just kind of what he does now. Well, no match, but he has done that previously, but he didn't have a match on this uh, yeah. particular Raw. Uh, so Rollins remained in the ring after commercial when Judgment Day sans Finn Balor interrupted him. Seth called that out that he wasn't there, but Rhea Ripley said he's fine. Then Damian Priest did the whole normal Money in the Bank winner shtick. Priest suggested Rollins be a fighting champion. So he, Rollins looked at Ripley, who said she's actually already defending her title. I love that moment. Uh, and obviously that left Dominic Mysterio to get his ass vociferously booed. Rollins said this is clearly a trap, but he would love to beat Dom's ass. And then he let the crowd decide whether he should accept. This was another hot, really sensible booking. Given Priest is the briefcase holder, he should be out early in the show. I will say the Dirty Dom moniker, it just doesn't work for me. It's really forced and it just sounds corny, especially when ex-condom was working so damn well. I just wish they kind of continued on that trajectory. But that's really my only criticism here. Dom gets elevated by fighting Seth in a Raw main event. Priest is going to get to factor in as the big winner from Saturday. And Rollins was featured for the entire first 20 minutes of Raw. Yeah, I love that Rollins stayed out there. Like normally those things happen and then you just end it and we'll go to Seth backstage and he'll continue whatever he was going to say. It made sense for Seth to stay out there. He never never got resolution to what he was looking for. So he stayed and, and we got it. Dirty Dom, it doesn't quite hit with me as well either. But think about this, like back to back nights, uh, Dominic Mysterio gets Cody Rhodes and then Seth Rollins. Like we know he's not going to win necessarily unless he cheats or something, but like he is so hated right now. This is exactly the position you put him in, you know, he to, to get his ass kicked or, or, or do some heelish stuff. He's not going to lose heat for losing at this point. He's just, he's the thing you boo. So I thought they played this all out perfectly. And we get Seth versus Dominic, which is what I wanted us to get after crown right after when Seth was going to be a fighting champion. So we ended up getting it. So he's gone through everybody in the judgment day now. So uh, good, good setup and, and everything. Dom's so hot right now. I think he could get, you could get baby face uh, cheers against him. If you got in the ring with him, that's how good he, he's doing right now. So it's all working. It's nuts, man. People love booing him. And yeah. that, that, that is an incredible place to be if you're a pro wrestler. Yeah. And what's great is he's still getting the seat despite not being against his father, which is, you know, was the main no. storyline. And, that, no. and, and it, that was resolved, but it also kind of wasn't. But it's it's like still hanging out there, 
but people just hate him now because of him. And that has done, they've done such a good job building him as a character. Uh, we had Priest totally. against Shinsuke Nakamura coming out of this segment. Priest delivered Broken Arrow to the corner of the barricade, which was really gnarly. Shinsuke did the Eddie Guerrero shake to Dom and then blew a kiss to Rhea. Priest then nailed him with a huge roundhouse kick. Nakamura came back with a flying knee, but Damian dodged Kinshasa, tucked Shinsuke's arm for a hammerlock lariat, and one was south of heaven in 11 minutes. This is how you know Triple H has the book. We had a heel briefcase winner not only win a match, but win it clean over a star on the brand. It's exactly what it should have been for Priest to get a significant win. And he also debuted a new signature move as part of his finishing sequence. Nakamura looked good enough where the loss was not problematic for him. He's been losing. And we didn't even get interference during the match. Super solid from top to bottom. Nakamura looked better for losing this match. Like he got to shine a bit and we don't often get that from from him. So that was great. Uh, Low-key awesome point in this match when Nakamura goes out of the ring and stares down Rhea Ripley and then blows her a kiss mm -hmm. and Dominic steps in front and grabs it. And oh, I missed that. Throw it back I did in miss the that. Ring. Yeah, that's good. That was incredible. That was amazing. Great. Just so many little things that the Judgment Day does well and, and, and that was one of them. Uh, only other thing I'll say is I think we're doing too much of the Eddie Guerrero. It's too much. Yeah. Shake a little bit. It's happening. Too many people are doing it. Let's let's pull back on that, everybody. It's really everyone in every company at all times. It's like if you're in a match with a luchador, <laughs> yes. if you're in a match with a luchador and you want to taunt them, you do the Eddie Guerrero thing. It's like, yeah, that's not really um, you know appropriate every single time. It's great that people want to honor him. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, it, it, it does become a little too much sometimes. Uh, we'll move to the main event, Rollins against Dominic. I'm pretty sure this was a non-title match. Uh, Rollins did three amigos and actually completed it. Speaking of, by the way, Eddie Guerrero. Uh, Ripley distracted the referee so Priest could shove Rollins off the top rope with Dom hitting two frog splashes with no cover. And then a third that ate double knees. Rollins hit a tope suicida, taking out both guys. He was ready to finish Dom when Priest caused a purposeful DQ with South of Heaven and brutalized Rollins around ringside with a flatliner into the announce table. Rollins then escaped a would-be razor's edge into the table, but Dom broke up a ringside pedigree with the briefcase. Dom convinced Damien, hey, you got to cash in the briefcase. But just as Priest entered the ring to do that, Finn Balor ran in from the ramp, pushed Rollins into Priest. Damien goes through the ropes, and then Balor goes for a coup de gras. Priest stopped him on the apron, and they start arguing about costing each other chances at the title as Rollins somehow still finds Dom and hits him with a pedigree at ringside, gets out of Dodge, with Balor and Priest continuing to argue as Raw ended. I just thought the creative here was really strong. I usually dislike disqualifications on TV in general, but especially in main events when they're built for an entire show. And we actually got them on both Raw and SmackDown this week. But this one worked because there was a reason for the DQ, Priest possibly cashing in his briefcase, and the post-match was extended. It was telling a much larger more complicated story. On one hand, I'm intrigued by this. Balor and Priest at odds, it is interesting. On the other hand, and we mentioned this weeks ago, the teasing of a breakup for Judgment Day, it's sad because they are operating yeah. so perfectly well right now as a foursome. If anything, I want them to expand. I don't want Priest excommunicated for JD McDonough I don't want Balor excommunicated and then teaming with McDonough while Judgment Day becomes a three-person group. As a viewer, as a fan, 
I just want these four to stay together because they've been doing excellent work. There's no question that this was solid. It was super entertaining. It created a lot of intrigue for next week's Raw. I just, I kind of hope, I'm holding out this hope that whatever they're doing with Balor and Priest is Swerve, is a, is a Swerve, not Swerve. Swerve is on a different company. Is a Swerve as part of a larger storyline that they're trying to tell. It was a very creative way to do that DQ and mess up the cash-in. Like you could totally frame it as Finn came in to try to help and he accidentally made it worse. So it's like a really creative way to get out of it. But to your point, yeah, like I don't want the Judgment Day to break up. They've all been elevated by this and continue to be. I I don't want I don't want this breakup. Like there were a few times when you thought the Street Profits were going to get to the breakup and they didn't do it. New like, Day. There's totally ways where you as well. Yeah, New Day's like th- there are ways where you can tease it, tease it, and then just when you think it's going to happen, oh, it's a swerve, and then they cash in on Seth maybe or something like that and and, and whatever. So. um yeah, they're teasing it. I just, I really hope it doesn't happen because I think all these guys are doing great and keep that going. Just, there's not a reason. It, it's not stale at all. They continue to be elevated by it. Like there's no reason to stop it now. It's as good as it's ever been. Indeed. Well, that was the main event of Raw and the main event of our show, which means it is time for our third segment of this episode. You know it, you love it. It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez, I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some. Jordan. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in the articles that I read. All right. For those unfamiliar, we're going to break down everything else that happened across Raw and SmackDown that we did not already discuss. And we're going to grade it good, bad, or ugly. That's exactly what this segment is all about. We'll start with the undisputed tag team championships defended on SmackDown. Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn against Pretty Deadly. The heels had special tag team title design brawlets. Uh, KO went on a huge hot tag run, but sold an injured knee at the end of it. He still had a swanton bomb before Deadly attacked it and hit a really cool push-off code breaker. They followed with spilt milk for a broken fall. Zayn hit a blue thunder bomb, and Deadly did the ring apron spot to hide who is the legal man. The finish came with a stunner on Elton Prince and Haluva kick on Kit Wilson for the title retention. With Sammy getting the fall, KO immediately after the bell took off his left boot and hobbled around with what to me at least looked like a real ankle injury. Now the match was great, perfect opener for the London crowd. The retention was obviously expected and the match did plenty to legitimize Deadly. I just didn't find it to be that notable from like a quality standpoint. Like if, if we were to grade it like 3.5 stars B maybe, but this was obviously good. I struggled to decide whether I liked this whole disco aesthetic for Pretty Deadly. On one hand, it feels like a total Vince McMahon thing, like misunderstanding their actual characters. But on the other, it's even more cheesy and they're the same guys. So maybe that's the point of the entire thing. Maybe I just need to get used to it. What do you think? I did love the brawlets with the each side of the tag team championships those were incredible <laughs> like it legitimately had me thinking hey maybe they will win because they got special gear for this match and whatever it felt like a big deal because they wore them i said this on money in the bank is a reaction but when you have a different haircut or a different set of trunks or something to, to to just like illustrate that this is a bigger than normal match for you i love that it adds to it that's what their look did you're right that the match never 
it never got to the spot where you thought like pretty deadly really were going to win, but they have certainly been elevated. I love these two teams together going back and forth on the mic. Um, accomplished everything you wanted there. Not a, not the most, not the best match in the world, but it, it, it was fine. It was hot. Um, yeah, good stuff. You didn't answer my question though. What do you think about the whole like forced disco aesthetic, which is new? Well, I did like I I knew of them in NXT, but I didn't like pay close attention to them. Like, so okay. I haven't noticed that much difference. Okay, understood. That's fair. If you're coming at it from a fresh perspective, then this is just the same guys, and they're just adding elements that are fresh to you, but you don't know that it's different than what it was previously, basically. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Uh, WWE Women's Championship was on the line on SmackDown. Asuka against Charlotte Flair. Bianca Belair was barred from ringside, but she bought a front row ticket. The fans were firmly behind Asuka. Charlotte hit a spear and her typical moonsault, missing Asuka completely outside. Belair kept flashing her ticket, like literally waving it over the barricade. So Asuka, understandably, gets pissed off, pulls her head down. Then she dodges a boot from Flair and Charlotte connects with Bianca. So Bianca jumped the barricade. And I think she beat on Asuka first for the disqualification. Uh, Charlotte had her hand out, like talked to the hand like it was 1995. That set off Bianca. Belair dodged her into the steel steps, then avoided an Asuka kick and hit KOD on her into the announce table. Flair started coming too, so Belair grabbed her and put her in a KOD directly on top of Asuka on the announce table, which still didn't collapse. And then she celebrated. So look, fans cheered Asuka over both of them and were clearly behind Bianca over Charlotte. But I'm afraid I've got some bad news. This entire segment had zero heat. The wrestling itself was awful. Charlotte and Asuka are great wrestlers. This match was terrible. Bianca flapping around the ticket constantly was eye-roll inducing. The reactions to everything from the crowd were muted, and this was a hot London crowd. This is a clear bad. It even lacked a shred of creativity. It was the most trite, repetitive, typical triple threat booking you could possibly do. And Bianca was supposed to be a face attacking Asuka, the heel. Except if anything, she got booed. No one was into Charlotte. And Asuka was the clear and obvious favorite out of the three. It was so slow and ponderous and just sluggish. Almost like no one involved cared that much about what they were doing. It's like they were given the creative. They're like, this sucks. We're not going to give it our all. I'm not saying that's what happened. This is what it felt like as a viewer. If this leads to a triple threat at SummerSlam, which we all believe it will, I have little doubt the match itself will be a banger. But holy shit, there are so many better, more creative ways they could have done this, not just Friday night, but over the last few weeks. And the build over the next month plus, it needs a lot of help to grow anticipation for this match. Yeah, man, like it goes back to the basic fundamental of Charlotte Flair is not a face. People don't want to cheer her. They want to cheer Asuka, but they've kept trying to have Asuka as the heel and it's just not working. People like her. And you've got Bianca as the tweener who every week is just complaining, even though Adam Pierce is like, you're going to be fine. She's still complaining. That's not like you're not connecting with that as a viewer. And so this whole thing was a mess. I am looking forward to the presumed triple threat at SummerSlam. These are three of the best women's wrestlers of all time. I, I certainly hope it's a, a banger. It's just been a messy way to get here. And everybody's just kind of in the wrong spot yeah. in terms of the story. So this was a bad for sure. Charlotte just, it's just 
weird, man. Like it's so weird that they're trying to push her as a face again. It's just not working. That's not how this goes. I was, I was so close to going ugly here. Like I really was like, they're trying to make Charlotte, the baby face, Bianca, the tweener and Oscar, the heel. That's not what people want. I mean, it's just, it's the opposite in many ways of what people want. And they're, they're ruining unless look, if Bianca loses the triple threat and then goes heel, then fine. Okay. That that'll probably work out, but they're like wasting such an opportunity to actually do something with her. And this whole, again, just like say what you want about the match and the storytelling her back there flapping the ticket for like five minutes straight during this match. I was like, stop, just stop doing it. We know you're there. Like, like someone told her that she wasn't, she wasn't just doing it. She got an instruction to do that, man. That was ultimately so freaking frustrating. And all three of them are better than this. You know, Charlotte at the end of the year may have the women's match of the year. Okay. That Rhea Ripley Charlotte Flair match at WrestleMania was incredible, but nine times out of 10, I see her on my television, especially when it's just on TV, whether it's talking or in a match or whatever the case, I don't care. I'm done with her. Like she almost needs to move into this John Cena role where she only shows up for big shows. She gets a two-week storyline. That way you don't get sick of her. There's not a title on the line. And she goes and puts on an absolute banger. That's what I would do with her these days. I want to see other women on my TV. Period. Yeah. And she puts other people over. Right. And she puts other people over. Two weeks, wins wins the title, and then loses it again. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. All right, let's move over to Raw, the Women's World Championship. Rhea Ripley defending against Natalia. Ripley was attacked on the ramp with Natty turning the tables from their last scheduled match and beating that ass. Uh, Ripley quickly weathered the storm with a huge punch. Rhea got the prism trap. They're calling it the prism lock. I don't know why prism trap's a better name, Uh, but Natty countered her into the turnbuckles. Ripley countered sharpshooter the same way and did the Eddie shake only to eat double boots on a rare frog splash attempt. And I know that she was trying to call back to Eddie Guerrero here, but that was a D-Lo Brown frog splash attempt if I've ever seen one. Uh, Natty then dodged (laughs) Rhea into the post hitting the British Bulldogs running power slam and her uncle's sharpshooter. Ripley struggled under the bottom rope, suckered Natty into eating a headbutt and added Riptide to retain the title in 13 minutes. Ripley attacked after the bell with Raquel Rodriguez and Liv Morgan making the save as Raquel stared down Rhea as the segment ended. So fans were fully behind Rhea, but also didn't boo Natty, which is exactly what you want here. This was kind of a mini banger. You could make an argument it was the best match on Raw. It was definitely the best Natty has looked in a long time. Solid payoff to their storyline. She helped make Rhea look like an absolute star again. And look, we'll see if Natty like has a character change coming out of this. But I was at 3.75 stars B plus for the wrestling. The post-match with Raquel insinuates they're going to go singles at or around SummerSlam with Rodriguez, the active tag team champion. Now, look, the last couple of weeks, we were critical because Raquel was doing one thing, then she was doing another. Now, all of that seems to make sense. And if it wasn't clear already from my breakdown, this was good. Totally a good. Did this surprise me out of nowhere? I mean, we had a couple matches between the two, which were just her getting trucked, Natalia getting trucked, and you thought, oh, it's going to happen again. But a great way to use the sneak attack to get the upper hand, to build some believability, to put Rhea in danger in a way that we rarely see her and have to work from underneath for quite a bit uh, of it. And, you know, Rhea kind of is that tweener where people cheer or boo her, depending on what's going on. And this totally worked, man. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe we are doing a Rhea Raquel after that. But, you know, Natalia 
if the role of Natalia is veteran who who's supposed to put on good matches to elevate somebody, uh, that was accomplished here. Over the last couple of months between these two, mm-hmm. Rhea looks better now. And that's that's a positive, and that's exactly what you want to do. And Natty's been doing well recently, too. Like, let's give her some flowers, too. She's fit, more fit than she's been in years. She's putting on, you know, nice matches when given the opportunity and get putting people over, as she always has. So I'm always happy to see Natty, like, get some shine. And it was cool for her to, to have this moment, for sure. And, and also, shout out Natty. They gave her, I think, nine Guinness World Records before the show or something like that. Uh, I don't know exactly what all nine were, but uh, cool for her. Yeah, it's like most women's matches in WWE, most on Raw, most on SmackDown, like a bunch of stuff like that. So, you know, whatever. Uh, EO Sky confronted Ripley later backstage, holding the briefcase in her face. Ripley said, try me. It will be the biggest mistake of your life. Just a nice tease. It was good to get EO on Raw, even though she's not technically a Raw superstar, but it just works really well because she's a briefcase holder. So she should be stalking her and she should be on the first show. I will say, even though Chris, we knew she wasn't going to cash in. When I saw her for a moment, I was like, wait a minute. Like, are they really possibly going to have her beat her ass backstage, bring her out, cash in, pin her? Like it wasn't out of the realm of possibility because we were talking about the record. But now that we tape this podcast, we can officially say Eosky is the second longest reigning women's money in the bank holder ever. So congratulations to her. Uh, Becky Lynch hit the ring, prepared to move on for money in the bank, but not Trish Stratus. So the heels entered with Trish unveiling her face mask from under a cowboy hat. It was the exact same style face mask that she had in 2004. What's hysterical is that face masks have improved greatly since then, but she was wearing the same one. Trish said she's still prettier with the mask than Becky is. Becky said, obviously Trish isn't cleared, so she'll fight Zoe. Stratus talked about being the goat and already beating Lynch. Becky reminded it was Zoe who won that match for her. And then she ran down Trish for only returning to get rubbed from stars like her. The long and short of it is that Becky and Zoe was booked for next week. It was a bit clunky for me in terms of the back and forth, but ultimately mission accomplished at the end of the day. Obviously love Trish bringing back the exact same mask. Great touch given the circumstances. I assume with five weeks to heal and mask technology these days, Stratus will be able to go at SummerSlam. Let's hope at least because the story is good. Despite some hiccups, this was good. And I'll tell you this, mask or not. It looked good, but she's got me saying, hey now. I didn't realize until you were doing the Money in the Bank fallout that Trish actually hurt her nose. Like when she came oh, for out, real? Yeah. I, like, I thought it was just a gimmick. I thought they were just, oh, you're saying, saying she got hurt in the match and they're going to bring back the math. Like I didn't realize she actually got hurt. So that's actually pretty remarkable um, and, and, and fits into all that. This was good. Makes sense. You know, Zoe Becky next week. The only thing I'll say, and I kind of say this with every Trish promo that they've done is like, it's like two or three minutes too long. You know, whether it's yeah. Trish in the ring by herself or this back and forth, it was like, I was like, all right, and we're kind of going and going. And then Trish is kind of saying something that's confusing. And then it's like, just keep it a little bit shorter, just any way you can. Um, it rambles a little bit. No, it's a great point. You're 100% right. Ronda Rousey charged to the ring getting booed with Shayna Baszler interrupting before she could even say a word. Baszler said she spoke for the fans saying they're all sick of hearing Ronda try and speak on a microphone. That got a pop. 
Rousey demanded an explanation. Baszler said that Ronda's a narcissist and Shayna is the only reason that she even got to WWE. And she apologized for even opening the door for her in that way. Rousey was angry that Baszler didn't speak up before and instead cost them the tag team titles, which I just appreciated from a storyline standpoint that she actually said that. <laughs> That's reality. You would be upset. Hey, if you hate me, fine. Why didn't you talk to me about it rather than just cost us the titles? Maybe we could have worked it out. Like, that's exactly what it should have been. That's what I was talking about earlier. Uh, Shayna talked about setting up rings, working indies, kicking down the door for Ronda to debut at WrestleMania. She said she loves wrestling and Rousey has ruined it for her. Baszler said that all she owes her is proof that there is someone in WWE who can shut her up. They brawled with Rousey taking a knee straight to the side of her freaking head as Baszler walked Ooh. off with Ronda calling after her. So I had no surprise coming out of me that Shayna carried this, but it was way way hotter than I expected. And that decapitation of Rousey's head, it made me audibly yell watching it at home. I was like, holy shit, she knocked her head off. It was great to see the crowd was not only into it, but firmly behind Baszler and nice job by creative not forcing Rousey as the baby face here. Plus credit to Rhonda for letting Shayna tear her apart verbally, speaking a lot of truths about her WWE career. I'm actually interested to see how this continues leading into SummerSlam. I'm thrilled that they're letting Shayna just show what she can actually do for the first time on the main roster. I hope they're in the fight pit. I believe this is the first time Shayna's ever been a true babyface in WWE. I could probably keep finding things I like about this, but it was good. Where the hell did that come from Shayna Baszler? <laughs> that might've been the best promo of her life. Like Dave, never let her talk all that much when she does it's been okay sometimes but that was incredible and and it got the pops that it should have from the crowd and it made her the baby face even though she's the one who turned on her partner lean into that because they're not going to cheer for ronda you don't force it even if it doesn't make sense just do it that was great the knee to the head man i thought ronda might have got knocked out from like the way she sold it just like like tangled up in the ropes there for a minute and then not only that she hits her with the knee and then they just play Shayna's music and she just walks off like didn't even need to do the beat down didn't need to make any other point just one solid knee and then just like I'm out of here like that was that was that was badass now look everything Shayna said was good it made sense it's a story you want to tell it just as Rhonda said it didn't make any sense to do it on Saturday and Money in the Bank, as we said. So that aside, the timing of it aside, the rest of it was great. And like, I'm willing to, all right, didn't quite make sense how we got here, but we're here and I like what it is so far and I'm excited for it. So this was great. Right, we can, we already discussed the Rush storyline, but in terms of the segment we got on yeah. Raw, there's no questioning that was a good segment. I mean, that was... It was fantastic. It was shocking how good it was, really. So credit to them. Yeah. You have to give them credit. Uh, Indy Hartwell and Candice LeRae, Chelsea Green and Sonya Deville, Katana Chance and Caden Carter, Dana Brooke and Tegan Knox, plus Nikki Cross and Emma were all involved in a tag team turmoil match to determine the new number one contenders for the women's tag team titles. Not only was this the return of the way, it was also Hartwell's debut match on Raw. We got a backstage segment of... Emma being there to pick up Nikki once Candace denied her the opportunity to team because she already agreed to do it with Hartwell. Uh, LeRae got killed with unpretty her and a lifted knee with Green and DeVille winning in two minutes. Nikki tagged out to check in on Candace that left Emma alone. 
That led to the heels hitting the exact same combination to win in two minutes. I think Sonya cheated entering the ring without a tag. I digress. Knox ate the same combination to fall in three minutes and 30 seconds at the tail end of a commercial break. Dana was her partner. They still jobbed out Tegan instead of Dana. Katana botched a combo moonsault by slipping on the bottom rope, but impressively maintained her grip on the middle rope, pulled herself back into the ring and hit it anyway. Then she made up for that with an insane hurricanrana with Chelsea sitting on Caden's shoulders above the top rope. So basically a super avalanche Frankensteiner. DeVille broke up after party, slugged Caden behind the official's back. That led to another unpretty her and the straight sweep by the heels in three minutes for that match and 12 minutes total for the entire match. So let me start with the positives. A lot of women were featured, many of whom we don't see weekly. Chelsea and Sonia were also booked incredibly strong, running through the entire field that established them as legitimate challengers. However, this had the exact same problem as the men's gauntlet a couple weeks ago. By the way, a men's gaunt- or a gauntlet and a tag team turmoil, they're basically the same match. If you're going to do a match like this, you have to give it ample time. If you have five teams and the men get more time than the women, so like let's just note that, the men should be getting at least 30 minutes. The women should be getting at least 20 minutes. Instead, we got four matches in 12 minutes with Kaden and Katana, one of the few legitimate women's teams, and the team by far with the highest ceiling, losing in three minutes. That is a joke. This should have been one triple threat match with three real teams, Indy and Candice, Chelsea and Sonia, Katana and Kaden. And if you had a triple threat, even if it was a triple threat elimination match, and you had to go 15 minutes instead of four matches that averaged three minutes each, we're talking an entirely different tune here because then your main women are getting featured and put over and the other ones, the teams that you threw together, they're meaningless. You could even do that at a later date. Candice chooses Indy, Nikki's upset, she gets Emma as her partner and they, the four of them fight next week on Raw. Like, it's not hard to do that. So yes, there were positives here, but given a chance to elevate six women, WWE instead elevated only two and they did it for short-term game. Beyond that, Chris, I'm not even sure why a number one contendership was so necessary two days after a title change. Why not do a mini tournament? Why not stretch it out over a couple of weeks? This wasn't insulting, although it is bad, and I am sticking with that grade, despite the positives that I did find in here. I'm saying good. First off, did you catch the way Samantha Irvin, friend of the pod, says Chelsea Green on her entrance? Yeah, we talked about that in my interview with her. She gives it like so much extra stank that it's yeah. it sets it apart from everyone so else that good. she announces. It really... Yeah. Yeah, it, considering all the entrances they did on this match, it like jumped out a lot, and I loved it. I loved it. Um, I give I'm giving this a positive because it felt to me. Look, I agree. Tournament would have been better than tag team or a triple threat with three but, teams that gets 15 minutes. Either of the two. Well, but I'm saying my my point is with the changing of the tag team titles going back to Liv and Raquel, and Ronda and Shayna exiting the division. This felt like. A, a, yet another reset for the division where we're going to show you how many tag teams we have in this women's division to remind you, oh, here's Indy Hartwell, by the way, here, here's their team. 
here's Katana uh, Chance and, and, and Casey Carter in, in them. Like some people you've only seen a couple of times. We're gonna give we're we're gonna th show them all to you here in this match. Now the key is moving forward to continue to feature them in different ways. That mm -hmm. now that they're not the number one contenders, but it felt like the goal of this to me was to say like, all right reset and tag team women's tag teams again look at all the women's tag teams we actually have that that are actual teams you know and so i'm giving it a good for that and i love that chelsea green and sonia deville went start to finish yeah like that made them look good by the end that that was that was important they don't just cheat to win they are a good tag team yeah i mean there are elements of them so, cheating but yeah but you're right yeah right but it's not yeah so so i am uh i'm, I'm giving this a, a good for for that reason based on what it has been for a while. Um, we'll see where it goes from here, but but I, I, I thought this was fine. Yeah, I think elevating Chelsea and Sonia was totally effective, and that was clearly the point of this. I just think that still could have been done if they did, again, a triple threat elimination match, and you get the three real teams instead of the ones that don't really matter. The women who do matter get more time, and then you can build storylines off of it going forward. That's all I'm really saying. It's not that it was like insulting or anything like that. It's just you had Caden and Katana who put on like a mini banger against Shayna and Ronda a couple of weeks ago when they had their debut match on Raw. And then they lose in three minutes here. You know, you're not really telling the cr crowd or the fans, hey, these people, you really need to care about them because they're important and they're good. And by the way, for anyone who doesn't watch NXT or didn't watch NXT, Katana and Caden in this match in only three minutes, again showed why they have it. You have it. You couldn't get rid of it. You couldn't sell it if you wanted to. You are it. And I hope people are starting to see it now. These two have a chance to become super over baby faces and a really special women's tag team on the main roster. Also, before I move on, I may have been critical of the time in this particular match, but there was a lot of women's wrestling segments across both shows this week, but especially on Raw. So it may be incremental, but it does seem like WWE is heading in a much better direction, at least in that regard. And that's a positive. Uh, Brawling Brutes backstage were looking for retribution on Solo Sokoa during SmackDown, but Adam Pearce told them it wasn't possible as the bloodline was otherwise busy. So to placate them, he gave Ridge Holland a championship contenders match with Austin Theory. To beat the champion, to be able to beat the champion. That doesn't make any sense. I do believe this is the first time we've heard that term or gotten a match like this since Vince McMahon originally retired. I tried to research it. I struggled to find like match designations, but they went away from championship contenders matches for the better. So it was odd to see one pop up here. So we had Theory against Holland in a non-title match. Theory struck Holland in the neck as he hung over the ropes. Then he hit his rolling dropkick for the win in a few minutes. Theory attacked with Sheamus making the save. This was far too short of a match. And they had Theory beat Holland quickly in the United Kingdom where he's from without even using his damn finisher. Yeah, he did go for the injured throat first, the one that Solo hurt, but it happened so fast, Holland couldn't even sell it and commentary couldn't even tell us that's what happened. So this just didn't hit properly. Now Holland has been one-shotted by Sokoa and relatively squashed by Theory back-to-back. -back. Not only that, it was clear they're setting up a Sheamus feud with Theory. So I assumed, oh, they're going to do that at or around SummerSlam. Nope, they're doing it next week. Now look, Sheamus, based on his career and resume, he deserves an immediate title match, but it's extremely weird to quickly give him one right away 
in contrast to Holland being forced to become number one contender by beating the champion first. For me, this was just bad all around. I'm giving this a bad, but I did like the beginning when they gave us Ridge Holland's background because mm-hmm. they were in the UK, talked about what he was wearing, how we got into wrestling, where he worked and stuff like that. And I was like, man, this is more character story than we've ever gotten on Ridge Holland before. I feel like I can connect with him a little bit more than I ever have before. And then you kind of get whatever that match was. So it's a bad, but like, it's an example of something like they do stuff like do stuff like that all the time to just like let us know who these people are sometimes. Now, with Seamus theory, I'm just wondering if they're if they're rushing up, if they planned theory Seamus at SummerSlam, but because LA Knight is crazy over, they want to do LA Knight Austin Theory at SummerSlam and they're pushing up Seamus to possibly just a thought, just yeah. a theory, no pun intended. But uh, that that came to mind. That's exactly what I think it is. To me, that makes the most sense by far. Uh, Matt Riddle fought Giovanni Vinci on Raw. Riddle hit the final flash knee, but Vinci countered Bro Derek into an ankle lock submission. Riddle countered back into an O'Connor roll for the win in two minutes. Imperium attacked him after the bell with Drew McIntyre making the save, easily dispatching both guys. Then he stared down Gunther and hit Vinci with Claymore to end it before a stare down over the ropes again with Gunther. Later backstage, Riddle thanked McIntyre for his help, suggested they team up next week to take out Imperium. Then they broed out a little bit. I'm just not sure if something ran long and time got cut here, but Riddle and Vinci can go. So a two-minute match only serving as a means for Drew to appear and make a save was ridiculous. I'd much have preferred McIntyre like drawing a line in the sand with an extended promo, getting that big moment back on Raw to talk. This one's definitely marginal, but I don't like the trend of like, Riddle losing in eight minutes on a premium live event and losing in two minutes or winning, I guess, in two minutes on TV. It's like, this guy can wrestle. Imperium can wrestle. Their whole gimmick is that they're mat technicians and that the, the ring is sacred. So let them wrestle. In fact, I think we have a clip from someone who talks about that. We're wrestlers in a wrestling ring. Let's just freaking wrestle. That's all I want here. So I, I got to say, I'm going bad, but it was marginal. The fans loved it. I just wanted more. Yeah, like bad for the match, but like clearly the point of this was Drew Gunther. What's a quick way to get there? But they already did and that on Saturday. They didn't need this. They already kind I of know. established it, you know? Yeah, I know. But like, again, I'm not a big riddle guy, so I didn't mind it maybe as much as, as you did. But it is interesting how they set up Imperium as like Vinci's like the low guy in the totem pole who you can beat easily. Kaiser's like the middle guy who can wins sometimes he's a legitimate threat and then Gunther's like the ultimate boss guy at the end they've kind of have mm-hmm. levels to that um I did like in the backstage promo when uh when Drew McIntyre said I hear the fans telling me to take my top off uh that was pretty yeah. funny yeah. um so look just get Drew McIntyre back in front of the U.S. crowd for a cheer we got five weeks got some time yeah I we guess. got some but uh so you know bad for the match but I continue it's good to see Drew back and and the crowd still Loving him and everything. So we saw footage of Ricochet and Logan Paul brawling backstage after Money in the Bank on Saturday night. On Raw, Ricochet said he respected Logan's skill, even if he was gifted an opportunity in that match, but that he disrespected him with that attack. Then he challenged for a face-to-face next week on Raw. This was actually a pretty solid promo from Ricochet, and it's an outstanding booking for WWE to get Logan on TV this way with what's surely going to be a confrontation 
but is at least a tease of, of him potentially fighting. Now, you may have heard elsewhere coming out of Money in the Bank about Logan Paul and LA Knight being a program for SummerSlam. We have been telling you for weeks on this show and on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over that Logan Paul ricochet made the most sense and to expect it, it's exactly what they're doing. It does make the most sense. You now have Ricochet and Logan Paul interacting at Royal Rumble and Money in the Bank, and that leads to a match at SummerSlam that Logan Paul can win. So that's really smart to get him a W, and this was good on Monday night. It makes the most sense to do Ricochet Logan Paul, though I still think LA Knight Logan Paul would be a big money match, but you know, they have a history. It all makes sense. You know, this isn't gonna be Ricochet Will Ospreay at SummerSlam. So I but I'm curious how much flippy stuff they tried to do. Mm-hmm. I did appreciate Ricochet, good promo, but I did appreciate him saying, uh, I'm not gonna respond to you on social media. You have to come on the television show to respond to me. So as, as someone who was watching it every week, I appreciated that. So I didn't have to scroll through Twitter or Instagram to find out uh, what was going on. So I appreciated that as well. Cool. Uh, Maxine Dupree was training with Otis backstage as Chad Gable was excited for her debut match this week. Dupree got hyped uh, for both of them, or I should say all three of them, to prove the Viking Raiders stupid for doubting them. Gable called her the Alpha Queen, saying they were ready to show American spirit ahead of July 4th. So we got Alpha Academy and Maxine Dupree against the Viking Raiders and Valhalla in a mixed six-person tag team match. Gable had a running senton off the apron on Eric plus an avalanche bulldog and flying headbutt on Ivar. The women got the hot tag with Maxine getting huge pops for two arm drags and a vertical suplex. Otis convinced her to do the Caterpillar. I know it's the worm, but they call it the Caterpillar. Uh, But that gave Valhalla an opening. Gable took out the other guys outside as Valhalla attacked, but Maxine did that sunset flip pinning combination after jumping on her back for the win in eight minutes. The crowd was so freaking hot for Maxine. I mean, probably in more ways than one, let's assume, but She's clearly only learned four moves, right? But credit to her for executing them. This is the perfect like low card entertainment type of feud. And while I still continue to want more for Chad Gable, I want him involved in more prominent feuds and matches. I'd love to have him win a singles title. It's tough not to love what we're getting here. Credit to Maxine for understanding her role perfectly and doing exactly what she needed to in her first ever match where she got the pin on Monday Night Raw, of all places. That's wild, too. This was good. The moment that stuck out to me was she does a move and then and, and then puts her hands up to do a thank you, and the crowd did it with her. Like, I don't think, we've, I don't know if we've ever gotten that, a, a crowd-wide thank you. Well, they were they heels for a while. To do it when so, she yeah. Put her yeah, that was, I was like, holy crap, that jumped out to me. I was like, these guys are over, man. Like, this, this gimmick, this thing is working. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Just they've been together for a long time. Speaking of teams we thought were going to break up and didn't break up, like this is just working. And like we said, hope they can move up the card doing this. But like they're, they're getting spots. They're on TV. They're doing matches. And the crowd is loving them. And that's all you can ask for. This was obviously a good. Uh, Tommaso Ciampa got back to his NXT basics, cutting a promo in front of a steel garage door, calling out the Miz for finally showing a spark after losing his ruthless aggression. This was pre-taped and aired on social media long before Raw, but it was a great promo from Champa. We shared it on Twitter. If you missed it or want to see the full version, I suggest watching it. Uh, the Miz answered live on Raw, promising everyone will put respect back on his name and saying he's ready to give the best version of himself in a no-disqualification match against Champa next week. He also said 
the last person besides Champa to call him a coward was gone from WWE. That, of course, being Daniel Bryan, now Bryan Danielson. Uh, these were two absolutely fantastic promos consecutively. It's great to see Champa speaking like himself again, and it was great to see this kind of fire at the Miz. Easy good. Really good stuff, and I liked the. It was smart the way they had Champa sitting for that promo, just to like highlight how big his arms are, as opposed to instead of just being in the ring and thinking he's short or something like that. Like just a really good presentation. And yeah, the Miz line about Dan and Brian loved it. Uh, good stuff. We we've been talking, by the way, about Johnny Gargano returning, and I did report on our uh, BuyMeACoffee.com/slash Getting Over. I wish there was a better way to refer to that. Um, but I did report Gargano was set to return on the Raw after Money in the Bank. That was the case. This match was supposed to happen on Monday. It got changed. So the match is happening next week. I presume that we will see Gargano next week as well. Just a little heads up for everyone. Uh, Karrion Cross got a promo package on AJ Styles saying that he liked choking him out and beating him in just three moves during the mixed tag team match. He promised next week would be checkmate. Styles later accepted the challenge with Meechin again, getting his back to even things with Scarlett. I don't really have a grade here. I don't think we need one. But it was a good enough promo by Cross, for whom speaking has never really been an issue. But Chris, I'm just not really excited for this feud to continue. I like the way Cross has been rebuilt, and I think he's doing better than he ever has before on the main roster in terms of believability, promos, or even wrestling. But I just want better for Styles, and I want something more interesting for Cross. Yeah, this one's kind of dragged down a bit, and it's like, all right, AJ Styles is fully back now. Let's maybe get him into something that's more important. And lastly here, no great as well. Bronson Reed got a promo package on Raw talking about how he uses fear to reach success. This was mixed with really hard-hitting clips of him and images of natural disasters as he called himself inescapable, which pretty much sounded like he was trying to do Thanos like inevitable, just a little different twist on it. Uh, it was good. I, I just thought, and again, no grade, but I'm just saying it was entertaining and it painted uh, Reed in a pretty good light as he continues to be built up as this monster on Raw. Yeah, this is something could have used a while back, but this is exactly the kind of thing you do to a guy who people don't totally know. Make him look good. Yeah. Now, now, we do have the last word coming up. Before we get to that, I just wanted to do a really brief look at what appears to be the early SummerSlam card. Uh, we have the Undisputed Championship. Roman Reigns against Jay Uso is the match I'm projecting based on obviously what happened at Money in the Bank and the plans for SmackDown on Friday. World Heavyweight Championship. Seth Rollins. We don't have an opponent for him. I wonder if they, Chris, just straight up run back Rollins, Finn Balor. Maybe the reason why Saturday's match and booking was so lackluster is they're planning like a higher quality match for SummerSlam and don't want to overshadow it. Maybe even with a big moment such as like Balor beating Rollins and then Priest cashing in after the bell, or he cashes in to make it a triple threat late in the match, stealing the title for Balor, turning him babyface. It's just that after Raw, they didn't establish anyone new. And looking at the roster, the only viable contenders for the title who are healthy and not currently in another feud are Bronson Reed, Shinsuke Nakamura, and The Miz. So because of that, I just think it's going to be Balor. What about you? Yeah, I think that makes sense too and continues the Judgment Day story. And you're right. That Seth Finn match, it felt like maybe they had to cut it for Cena or whatever, but it felt like this is something you could run back again. And uh, it makes sense. And I hope they do and hope they get a better spotlight. So that's two matches. We'll have Cody Rhodes against Brock Lesnar, clearly in a stipulation match. WWE Women's Championship, Asuka, Charlotte Flair, and Bianca Belair in a triple threat. Women's World Championship, Rhea Ripley against Raquel Rodriguez. Intercontinental Championship, Gunther against Drew McIntyre. Becky Lynch against Trish Stratus. Ronda Rousey against Shayna Baszler. Ricochet versus Logan Paul. Right there, 
That's nine matches. Have to assume something for Edge because he is going to be appearing on SmackDown this week. Maybe that's Grayson Waller since he's appearing on his show. Maybe it's LA Knight, potentially. That could be really interesting. Edge against LA Knight. Um, We also have to assume a men's tag team championship. That could well be DIY if Gargano returns next Monday and sides with Champa as expected. LA Knight could also be involved in a match. You mentioned Austin Theory for the United States Championship, as we've been talking about. If that was to happen, now we're up to 11, 12 matches. Triple H has not had a single one-night card over eight matches since he got the book. So somehow they're going to have to trim that down. Maybe the women's title matches are on the Raw and SmackDown before SummerSlam. That feels strange to do, but there are two other women's matches booked for the show. We'd still be over that number at nine. Nine would still make sense and not be too much, but this does look like a jam-packed card. Really exciting stuff. I'm just wondering how they fit it all in, Chris. I I imagine they'll put one or two or three of those matches on the SmackDown before, which is very clearly a thing they do now. WrestleMania week, Money in the Bank week. Like You'll have probably a title match or two uh, on that Saturday. I just hope whatever the LA night match is, I hope it's on SummerSlam and not on SmackDown. Yeah. What do you think about that philosophy? Just like, you know, WWE, they've been keeping the match card short and we've been appreciative of that. AEW goes crazy. They'll go anywhere from... 10, 12, at one point, I think there was a show that had 15 matches, right? I felt that what AEW does is they just create a lot of matches out of thin air to get big names on the card and extend the number. WWE, they're leaving premium live event quality matches off the show that are actually built up in storyline. My belief is, yes, you should not create matches for these special shows just to get talent on the show. But if you have matches with storylines worthy of being on it, I feel like they should be on it. So all those matches I just mentioned, maybe Rhea Ripley and Raquel Rodriguez is one of them where it's not necessary and it doesn't need to be on the show. But that's one. All the rest of these would make sense to be on there. LA Knight and Austin Theory would probably be another that wouldn't make sense. But the rest, those are all legitimate SummerSlam matches. I'm I'm fine with putting stuff on SmackDown the, the, the day before when it's like a one show thing. SmackDown before WrestleMania, not as much because mm-hmm. it's a two night card. Um, and, it, you know, it's I like the short cards. I don't want to go back to 13, 14, 15 match. Totally. WWE cards. The three to four hour range has been perfect. I feel good after it. Between the two, I would much rather take that. All right. Makes sense. Folks, we are out officially of the good, the bad, and the ugly, which leaves us with our final segment on today's show, The Last Word. So DJ, take the needle and just drop it on the record. We gon' have this poppin' in a second. That's why we always say the best cut last to make you scratch and mix for it like fresh cut grass. So longtime listener Jordan Blaney at jblaney21 wrote in. He said, with money in the bank having passed, what are your top three favorite stipulation matches? I think this is a really good question because there are endless number of stipulation match types out there that we could choose from. Uh, I'll go with my three, Chris, then you can follow up with yours. Um, a ladder match, Money in the Bank included, is definitely in my top three. It doesn't go crazy adding too many elements like a hardcore match does necessarily, even though all weapons are technically legal. It's the intensity of the guys jockeying or, or girls jockeying for position atop the ladder, ultimately 
reaching to the sky and retrieving something and ending the match on top of the ladder with fans cheering around them. It is such a unique visual and such a unique concept. So both regular ladder matches for titles and Money in the Bank, that is on my list for sure in in one of the spots. Uh, Elimination Chamber has become great. It takes the brutality of Hell in a Cell and Steel Cage, but it adds the elimination concept. And anyone who knows me knows I love elimination matches. It also prevents like that automatic spot of people climbing on top, which I hate. And you get all the added elements of like the outside grates, the pods. They've been doing really fun stuff with them, jumping out of them, spearing people through them. Plus, Elimination Chamber happens less frequently than cage matches in Hell's in a Cell. So as long as there's something significant at stake, Elimination Chamber usually hits for me. And then the third stipulation that I love is Iron Man match because you're moving away from the gimmicks into what is ideally a more pure wrestling type of concept. It ups the ante beyond a single fall. It's usually a grudge match or a rubber match in like a series. Think about how many classic feuds were made better by Iron Man. Uh, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Kurt Angle, Brock Lesnar, even recently, MJF and Brian Danielson. I wish there was actually more of a build where they fought you know, a couple times and that led to it, but they gave us an incredible Iron Man match, and that was way better than a one-fall match between those guys would have been. So those are my three. I do have some honorable mentions I'll talk about later, Chris, but what are yours? Three different ones, and I'm glad. Too often we agree on this thing. Good. Um, I actually hate Iron Man matches, just for the record, um, so I'm glad we, we disagreed on that. My three, well, my first one is similar to yours, uh, TLC. Mm-hmm. And I say specifically TLC instead of ladder because of what ladders have become, which is doing moves onto people on ladders on the outside. And I hate that. I don't like it. Just it looks too painful to me, especially as we saw when the ladders don't break. I love tables. I love the, the clean break, the sound, the protection. Uh, I just like falling through tables more than falling through ladders safer. So TLC is my first one. Number two, uh, not in any order, but my second one is Royal Rumble matches, specifically Royal Rumble and not Battle Royal, if mm-hmm. we're allowed to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Because of the countdown, because of the mystery. It's it's legitimately like probably my favorite event of every year. Um, it's just it, you can't not be excited for the Royal Rumble, no matter what happens. Third one, Falls Count Anywhere which is not used nearly enough as it should be. We get last man standings and I quits and all this stuff. Falls count anywhere to me is so much fun because it opens up a world of possibility and things you can do outside the ring, in the crowd, backstage, halftime heat, like all these fun things. We we got Jericho Adam Cole doing that a couple weeks ago. I love falls count anywhere. Uh, It's exciting. It's fresh. Anything can happen. And I wish promotion used it more. So those are my three, TLC, Royal Rumble, False Count Anywhere. False Count Anywhere is in my honorable mentions. I agree. We talk about it all the time. Last Man Standing, so overdone, like ridiculously overdone. Uh, False Count Anywhere, such a great concept. If you do take it backstage or up on the stage or wherever into the crowd, you can utilize other elements. Um, I want to say there was a match, maybe I'm forgetting, where someone used a a bulldozer, uh, not a bulldozer, a forklift, and pressed the forklift onto that person's chest and they couldn't get up. 
and they yeah, got half, pinned one, two, three. Halftime heat, the rock, the rock mankind. Right. There you go. Um, so like that, I think there was one back in the day with Randy Savage and Crush at WrestleMania. Like there are some great Falls Count Anywhere matches. So that's one of my honorable mentions. My other two, uh, three stages of hell, which is basically a best two out of three falls match, but with three different stipulations and gauntlet eliminations, which should just be done way more often where instead of it being a gauntlet match where uh, one person, you know, takes a fall, then a new person comes in. It's based on time. So like every five minutes, a new person enters the ring, whether or not a fall has happened. So a one-on-one can become a triple threat, a fatal four-way, then it can go down to a triple threat, then it can become a fatal four-way again. It's basically similar to Elimination Chamber without the chamber, but obviously, you know, it, it can be different as well. And obviously the Yapapai Indian Strap match, we all have to give that a shout. Just kidding, that obviously was terrible. Uh, but those are my honorable mentions. I will note, uh, Chris, I don't know if you ever saw it this year, the Iron Survivor Challenge that they did in NXT, it melded Iron Man match with gauntlet elimination. Now, I wasn't a fan of the penalty box part of the concept, which is why it's not on my list here. But if you remove that and you do the Iron Man with the elimination gauntlet type of concept, um, that could be one of my favorite match types. So any others that you wanted to mention? That one was too much. It reminded me of Jeff Jarrett's King of the Mountain match. Yeah, it was too much. (laughs) It's a lot. Um, Punjabi prison, the concept, I think it looks really cool. I thought it did and too. They did the, the, yeah. they did the gender Randy Orton one, I think, that was decent, if I remember. It got cr- um, people, people hated it. Much. I didn't hate it as much as other people did. Yeah. I just think the visual um, of that is so and, cool. I always have. Yes. Yeah, me too. And um, Survivor Series. I actually, Classic. I like Survivor yeah. Series more than War Games, mm-hmm. honestly, I think. And I think this year kind of, solidified that for me i don't know if it's going to come back or, or what they do but a good survivor series match like back in the day um usually pretty fun so that triple that's an honorable mention that triple threat men's um survivor series match with nxt raw and smackdown where it ended Ooh. with roman reigns and keith lee holy shit Ooh. was that great the, there was also was the one moment. wasn't there one where, where like dolph ziggler was the sole survivor or something like that a couple years before yep. that Dolph. Man, I, that was when that was when Sting debuted. Sting debuted to help Dolph Ziggler be the sole survivor. Dolph Ziggler was in that match because Roman was either hurt or suspended. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it turned out Roman was supposed to be in that spot. And so that's why Dolph didn't get much of a push after it, unfortunately. Yeah. But I remember as a longtime Dolph Ziggler guy, we were hoping that was a moment. But yeah, that was against the authority to save their jobs. And uh and, and they do that, but then they get fired and then Cena wins their jobs back. It was a mess. But that match itself, you're right. That was a moment. Oh, man. And, and the way that a Survivor Series match can put someone over, even if you lose, if you like pin three people and then get eliminated, but it's like a, you had a huge run in the match and it elevates you. Survivor Series underrated. And I, I hate the way that they've kind of forget the War Games aspect of it. I love War Games and I'm glad that they did it and, and all that. But the, they've the, even with War Games, even if you keep that concept, you should still be doing a five-on-five eliminator match, at least one every year at Survivor Series. Really, it should be two, one for the men, one for the women. And then you can do whatever else you want on the show. I, I, I hate that they have gone away from it. Um, it's always been frustrating to me. But yeah, uh, that's basically, you know, an eliminator match. It's just a tag team eliminator match. So just a little bit different. All right, folks, those were our favorite stipulation matches. Here's a heads up if anyone wants to get on the show. 
A good last word question might be asking what our least favorite stipulation matches are, and that could serve as another topic for this conversation. But that is it for today. I appreciate Vintage Chris Vanini for joining as always on the way out. A few reminders first that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. Also the five-star ratings on Spotify. We're at 397 ratings and reviews on Apple. Three away. I know how many of you listen. Please get us to 400. I would appreciate it. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all that good stuff. We will be back on Wednesday with an NXT episode and on Thursday with our AEW episode. So be sure not to miss those. Also, I happen to love the number five. So please consider joining us at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. For five bucks a month, you can contribute to the show, support the Silver King, support Vintage, but also you get bonus audio after every major TV show and news posts at least once a week. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thanks to all of you for joining us once again on this WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. For Vintage Chris Vanini, this is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off on July 4th and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.